on this Friday, May 13th, as it's been a while since I've spoken to you guys. Just about two weeks, as I uh, took a break last week, as we had the uh, preview show for Backlash, or WrestleMania Backlash in WWE's world. So did not want to dilute the um, our feed too, too much, so took a break from it last week. And then obviously, Matt and I took a break from our... Um, state of wwe podcast as has become pretty popular with you guys and i will take the full blame for that i had to pull the plug at the 11th hour right before we started recording because um i don't know if you guys have moved before but moving is absolutely the worst process in the history of mankind <laughs> obviously i'm exaggerating a bit but for anyone who has moved in recent history can kind of sympathize with what i'm going through i remember matt was going through it either last year or two years ago and it is an absolute hellacious process just you know trying to find a property then selling your existing property getting the dates match planning financials talking to the bank notaries real estate agents all this and um on a side note bit of personal news i will be living with my in-laws for about three months and that is going to be oh so fun as you can probably detect the sarcasm in my voice but obviously you're not here to listen to my personal trials you are here to talk about wwe retro and today we are going back to 2004 to cover the wrestlemania 20 pay-per-view and you know, knowing me, and I'm sure you guys know me all so well now, I've been on the the WWE podcast for just about three years now, you know how much I was into the Attitude Era, or not so much the Attitude Era, the Ruthless Aggression Era. I did watch the Attitude Era, but everyone knows that I'm a Ruthless Aggression guy. And for me, WrestleMania 20 was the epitome of the Ruthless Aggression Era, with a hint of the Attitude Era still involved. And that's why I think it was such a special pay-per-view. And when we hear debates over what was the best WrestleMania of all time, obviously we have the usual suspects, right? It seems almost unanimously that WrestleMania 17 is the best of all time. And I would tend to agree with that. Or you got a lot of people who say WrestleMania 3, Hogan versus Andre. A lot of people who say WrestleMania 6, you know, because of Hogan versus Warrior. WrestleMania 12 with the Iron Man match between HBK and Shawn Michaels. HBK and Shawn Michaels, that's kind of redundant. HBK and Bret Hart. WrestleMania 25 because of the main event between Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. There have been so many good WrestleManias, but... I feel like WrestleMania 20 often gets overlooked, and I'm not sure why. Maybe it was a lack of star power at the top of the card. Maybe it was because 
the guy who closed the show was someone who's kind of been blacklisted by WWE for obvious reasons and Chris Benoit. Maybe it's because it was not in front of a full capacity stadium. It was at Madison Square Garden. It was before WWE had officially always gone to stadium type of venues for WrestleMania. They had so numerous years and had had done so three years leading into WrestleMania 20. But they decided to go back to well with MSG for the 20th anniversary. But for me, it is a slam dunk top five WrestleMania of all time. Because it had a bit of everything. It had nostalgia. It had a solid mid-card. It had championships featured throughout. Fun fact, this was the the only championship that was not defended on this pay-per-view was the Intercontinental Championship. And it was still involved in the pay-per-view as Randy Orton took part in the tag team match. But every other championship was featured on the card. And in my opinion... If you're not having championships featured at WrestleMania, then what are you doing here? I really think that every championship or almost all championships should be featured at WrestleMania. And usually you have a tag team title that is featured at Mania. Usually you have the world titles, obviously. But I feel as though that it really is the mid-card titles that have taken a hit here. The mid-card championships in recent years are the ones that have really taken a backseat as far as WrestleMania goes, and none more so probably than the United States title because it has been defended in recent years at times. You know, uh, Sheamus and Riddle at WrestleMania 37 last year in Orlando. A few years back, you had the fatal four-way between Randy Orton, Jinder Mahal, Bobby Roode, and the last person, his name escapes me, but I'll eventually get it soon. But Typically, you don't see the Intercontinental title or the U.S. championships defended on the grandest stage of them all anymore, which is sad, right? Because you had the back-to-back years of the Intercontinental Championship ladder match in WrestleMania 31 and WrestleMania 32. And it's something that I feel isn't as consistent as it needs to be. And as we start to look at this card here, we see that the opening match was for the United States Championship with the Big Show defending against John Cena. And just that in and of itself kicked off just how good this pay-per-view would be. Because we get John Cena, who was arguably the biggest star that this company had, or the fastest rising star in the company at this time. And you had seen him really get thrusted into the upper mid-card over the last six months that really started back at Survivor Series 2003 when he hit the big show with the FU to close out the victory for Team Angle. So a lot of long-term storytelling here. And he has a match with the big show. Not the greatest match in the world. Big show largely dominates this contest. And then John Cena, with the help of the Brass Knucks, hits Big Show with an with an FU in front of Madison Square Garden to win his first ever championship at the main roster level. So right off the bat, you start off WrestleMania on a high with arguably the fasting, fastest rising star in the company, a babyface, you know, to boot, winning the United States Championship. And starting the, the, the pay-per-view off with the proper match is always so important. And when you throw in a championship, and at this time, the mid-card titles really did feel important. 
it was it, it was a good way to get everyone invested right off the hop. And then you get into the second match. And the second match was a fatal four-way for the World Tag Team Championships, a.k.a. the Raw Tag Team Championships, because at this time, the Raw Tag Team titles were called the World Tag Team Championships, and the SmackDown Tag Team titles were called the WWE Tag Team Championships. There wasn't any brand-exclusive championships back then, which, in a way, I kind of preferred, because then you weren't forced to have one title you know, subjected to stay on one brand at all times, they could float. Kind of like what we see now, that, like, if the Raw Women's Champion and SmackDown Women's Champion get drafted to opposing shows, they have to swap the titles. Ditto for the SmackDown Tag Team titles, assuming uh, when they are separated. It seems like eventually those will be unified sooner rather than later. So you had Rob Van Dam and Booker T., the reigning champions, successfully defend the championships against Garrison Cade, and Mark Jindrak, the Dudley Boys, and La Resistance, represented by Rene Dupree and Rob Conway. And we see this a lot at WrestleMania. This seems to be a formula that they've stuck with for the most part. Have I, having multi-team matches for the tag team championships at WrestleManias. And I really do think that this is a good formula because, to be quite honest... um. A normal tag team match for the tag team titles at WrestleMania does not really seem all that special. And I may be in the majority here, but I think that not to say that every match has to be a gimmick match. I do think for the most part, the world title matches should be exclusively one-on-one, except for special occasions. And we'll get to that at this Mania because the main event was not a one-on-one match. But I don't think gimmick matches are always necessary. But for the lower card titles, especially the tag team, because there's not usually a deep-rooted story like involved here, I think it's mostly good to have you know a ladder match that we saw with Edge Christian, the Dudleys, and the Hardy Boys. Then you also had times, in this case, where you had four corner matches, which I also found very entertaining. Or when you had the ladder match that featured the Hardys return at WrestleMania 33. These are all things that, as far as tag team titles go at WrestleMania, it's a really good formula to stick to. And personally, I believe that it is something that always will work. It's something that you could always go back to the well And it's a sure thing that you will draw interest. We saw it this year with the Street Profits, the Alpha Academy, and the uh, RK Bro. As opposed to the Usos versus Shinsuke and, what's his name, Rick Boogs. Like, I still do think that Usos versus Boogs and Shinsuke was a good match. But it couldn't match the excitement of the three-way contest we saw on the Raw side. So, I do really believe here that this was another good thing that they got right with this pay-per-view. Then you get on to the next match, and this is a match that isn't very talk is not talked about a whole lot here, and this is Christian versus Chris Jericho. A feud that was kind of 14 months in the making because these were guys who had tagged with one another for almost 14 months and for the better part of 2003, a heel tag team. 
And then you have Trish Stratus get involved as the love interest of Chris Jericho. Christian ends up turning heel on her, putting her in the walls of Jericho in a one-on-one match between Christian and Trish Stratus, leading to this grudge match between Christian and Chris Jericho. And another thing that's always good to have on a pay-per-view, especially WrestleMania, is a very intense grudge match one that has no championships involved could this match have used maybe an intercontinental championship to up the ante a bit maybe but this is a match that you rarely see at a wrestlemania be so prominent but it's so important when done right the year before we had seen it between jericho and hbk and jericho i think is the perfect guy to have these types of matches even though we had seen him in world title matches before or intercontinental championship matches before wrestlemania having him be that grudge match guy was so perfect and the way this one ended well it was a swerve but instead of me explaining it to you how about you guys take a listen Oh, for God's sake. The two-top tango 
So what's a what's a WrestleMania without a good swerve, right? And this was a pretty cool swerve where you had Trish Stratus, who had been a babyface for man just about three years now since she had turned on Vince McMahon at WrestleMania 17, just flipped the script and side with Christian in a way that completely came out of left field because this match almost came to be with Jericho defending Trish's honor. So a good mid-card match that had no title involved, complete grudge match, and the entire grudge part of it eventually flipped the script and left Jericho asking questions. And this would kind of play out over the following months on Monday Night Raw. So a pretty cool swerve right in the middle of WrestleMania 20, flipping, uh, checking yet another box. And then you get on to a match that I've talked about a few times here because of who it entailed. And yes, it was the Rock and Saw connection against Evolution. And obviously, this was a lot of long-term booking here. Mick Foley and Randy Orton had been at odds for quite a few months, beatdown after beatdown of evolution on Mick Foley that eventually led to the return of The Rock. And it felt so damn special, right? Because The Rock had been, you know, separated from the WWE for just about 10 months at this point, at least certainly on a full-time basis. And you had The Rock come back to defend Mick Foley. And having The Rock come back in a tag match at WrestleMania, absolutely unheard of, right? You know, the year before he goes one-on-one with Austin. The year before that, one-on-one with Hogan. The two, the three WrestleManias before that, he had been in the main event involving the WWF Championship. So The Rock coming back from his movie schedule to be taking part in a tag team match right in the middle of the card was absolutely a jolt of energy to really get to give the crowd something in the middle of the card. Not even a championship match, not even a one-on-one grudge match. And we have another big grudge match to get to before the championship matches. It was absolutely incredible. And it really elevated the meaning of the feud between Orton and McFoley to give the crowd a reason to get behind this. And I remember Mick Foley talking about this on one of the WWE documentaries where he was saying, well, I don't know if The Rock will come back unless he feels like it's a big deal. And Bruce Pritchard saying that, I think it was Bruce Pritchard saying he does feel like this is a big deal. And what would be a Rock return without a Rock promo at a WrestleMania to get the crowd fired up for the three-on-two handicap match between Evolution and Rock and Sock Connection. Mick, you must be extremely emotional tonight, being that this is your first match in four years. So what is going through your mind right now? Really, it's more than just my first match in four years. It's WrestleMania. It's Madison Square Garden. It's the biggest night in the history of our sport. Fans have flocked from around the world to be here. So when you ask, am I overcome with emotion? Yeah. I just hope that the main, the hatred I have for evolution doesn't overcome me, get in the way of the plans that The Rock and I have made. Whoa, 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 Mick Foley! Mick Foley, you talk about the emotion. You gotta let the emotion go. Let it go. Because Mick Foley, The Rock, hasn't said this in a long time, but finally, The Rock has come back to New York City! That's what I'm talking about, Mick Foley. And The Rock says this. Finally, Mick Foley has come home. 
This is your night. The Rock knows it. Lillian knows it. Hell, the camera crew knows it. Let the Rock show you. Come here. Come around the corner. Oh, look, we got we got the hamburger and Grimace. They know it. They know it. Put the hamburger away. Try the chicken McNuggets, your best son. Look at this right here. We got two legends. The Superfly Jimmy Snooker. Don Morocco. They know it. They know it. Follow the Rock. You see, McBully, you see. And, 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 and above all else, the people know it. City, the people know it. And it's not good enough people to hear the people. We to, we're gonna see the people follow the rock. Get a shot. Get a shot of the millions. Come right back. You come right back. You see McFoley. It's our night. It's our night. Let's go out there and electrify as only you and the rock can. Let's go out there, slap the lips off those evolution sons of what the candy asses. If you're some man, what the rock and sock is cooking. And obviously they would go out to lose to Evolution in the 3-on-2 handicap match, but a match that really cemented Randy Orton as an upper echelon uh, guy in the WWE. And going in as the Intercontinental Champion, he would follow up this victory at WrestleMania as he gets the pinfall on McFoley, defeating McFoley at Backlash in a hardcore match, and would eventually win the World Heavyweight Championship that same summer at SummerSlam. And this was a match that helped catapult him into that upper echelon. So as you move on to the next match on the card, you have Tori Wilson and Sable defeat Miss Jackie and Stacey Keebler in a Playboy evening gown match that lasted all of 2 minutes and 41 seconds. And this one isn't really worth covering. It was a product of the times and something we are very happy that is no longer featured in WWE programming as there's just no place for that kind of degrading, um, uh, how would you say, content in terms of women and something that we are very fortunate to no longer have to deal with. Moving on to the actual next wrestling match on the card, you had the Cruiserweight Open for the Cruiserweight Championship And this was a pretty cool gimmick match to give out here because obviously cruiserweights are involved. The more high-flying for this particular match, the better. And you have Chavo Guerrero successfully defend his championship against Akio, a.k.a. Jimmy Wang Yang, uh, Billy Kidman, Funaki, Jamie Noble, Nunzio, Rey Mysterio, Shannon Moore, Tajiri, and Ultimo Dragon. And this was a cool match, another one that you wouldn't typically see on a normal pay-per-view or a normal SmackDown as the Cruiserweight Championship and the division was exclusive to SmackDown at this time. And I think it was cool to give the the crowd something that they wouldn't typically see on a normal programming or a normal pay-per-view. And I think that is something very special that this particular WrestleMania delivered for us is that it gave us in several types of matches that we wouldn't see at any other pay-per-view on the card. You know, a three-on-two handicap match with Rock and Saw connection against Evolution, four corner tag team matches for the tag team titles, and then a turmoil match 
with the Cruiserweight Championship on the line, or not so much a turmoil, but this was kind of like a, yeah, I guess it was a turmoil, because with every guy who got eliminated, the next one would come in. They phrased it as an open, but, you know, tomato-tomato in this particular case. Moving on after this, you get the infamous match, arguably the most infamous match in the history of WrestleMania, and that is Brock Lesnar versus Goldberg with Stone Cold Steve Austin as the special guest referee. And you know what? The build to this match was excellent, and that's why I think it made it that much more disappointing. Because you want to talk about long-term booking. They were booking this months in advance with two guys on separate brands, Goldberg on Raw, Brock Lesnar on SmackDown. And we all know how it delivered. The The crowd turned on it. It was the final match. I think you had the final ex- appearances for both these guys on WWE programming until Brock returned in 2012, Goldberg returned in 2016. Left a bad taste in the mouth of a lot of fans, and uh, it suffered. A horrible match, disappointing match. The crowd won nothing to do with it, and it is bad when Stone Cold Steve Austin can't save something. And, you know, having Stone Cold Steve Austin on the card, at least in this capacity, you know, coming to the ma- uh, to the ring on an ATV. And this was the first WrestleMania where we saw Stone Cold Steve Austin not as a full-time competitor. So I thought it was important to get him on the card. It was just unfortunate that he had to be involved in this dumpster fire of a contest that went almost 14 minutes and just an absolute waste of everyone's time. And obviously Goldberg and Brock redeemed themselves at Survivor Series in 2016 and at WrestleMania 33 for the Universal Championship in in 2017 but uh this was one that really did not uh, age well at all it was terrible back then it's just as terrible now and better left not being reviewed for the most part then you get in to the second fatal four-way match for the tag team championships this time for the wwe tag team championships over on the smackdown side with Too Cool, Rikishi, and Sky Tuhati successfully defending their tag team titles against the world gre- world's greatest tag team, also known as Shelton Benjamin, Charlie Oz, and formerly known as uh, Team Angle, along with the Basham brothers and the APA, Farouk, and Bradshaw. This match did not go long, only six minutes, which was a bit less than the their Raw counterparts. And this match I thought was good too. I like these multi-team matches for tag team titles at WrestleMania. Like I said, it's a working formula. And again, much like the Raw tag team championship matches, uh, match rather, the babyface tag team holding the titles going in would retain and said the crowd home happy. And obviously, for good measure, we got a too cool dance by Rikishi and Scotty Too Hottie to boot. Then the Women's Tag Team Championship, or the Women's Championship rather, there was no Tag Team Championship this time, with Victoria as the champion going in against Molly Holly with the stipulation being if Molly Holly loses, she gets her head shaved. And lo and behold, that is exactly what would happen. And this was the a rarity with uh, the Women's Championship in this era not featuring Trish Stratus. She would go into WrestleMania 21 and 22 as the women's champion, and she was involved in the women's championship match in the two years preceding it in 18 and in 19. 
uh, WrestleMania 18, WrestleMania 19, that is. So it was out of five years straight, this was the only time that Trish Stratus was not involved in the women's championship match at a WrestleMania. And you know what? This delivered. I really think that uh, it was a good match. The stipulation obviously gained, uh, got it more interest. Um, Victoria, in my opinion, probably the most underrated uh, woman in the division at this time. Like many people forget her very good rivalry, underrated rivalry with uh, Trish Stratus during the early years of the Ruthless, uh, ruthless Aggression Era, easy enough for me to say, uh, when she was a heel. She was the babyface in this particular match. And Molly Holly, a very good worker in her own right. Unfortunately, it didn't even get five minutes on the card, but still delivered, in my opinion, and one of the more underrated matches on this card. Then you get Eddie Guerrero versus Kurt Angle for the WWE Championship. And easily a match of the night contender. In my opinion, it was not the match of the night. And we will get to my match of the night as it went for 21 and a half minutes. And this is everything you would think it would be a wrestling clinic by arguably two of the best in the in the WWE at this time. You had a good story going in with Kurt Angle turning heel on Eddie Guerrero following his championship victory over Brock and No Way Out. You had Kurt Angle, you know, playing on Eddie's checkered past, him being an Olympic gold medalist. And, you know, Kurt Angle at this time was money. He was one of the best in the business, arguably the best guy on SmackDown at this time, which is saying something when you had guys like Brock and you had guys like Taker. And uh, Eddie Guerrero, a month into his main event push as the WWE champion, was excellent. And he ends up getting the victory with a roll-up and uh, this is one of those instances where the roll-up was fitting and it worked because it protected Kurt Angle and it showed off Eddie's creativeness as you had Eddie in the ankle lock and he had undone his boot and just an iconic way to end the match and when Angle had him in the ankle lock for what felt like the fifth time in that match he was able to slip out with Angle holding his boot and I remember Angle runs at Eddie, holding Eddie's boot, and Eddie rolls him up and then hooks his feet around the rope to give him that much more leverage, playing on his whole mantra of lie, cheat, and steal, and retaining the WWE Championship. And this was a match that would set up future matches for these two. They would have the rematch at SummerSlam with the title not involved. They would have their respective teams clash at Survivor Series as a, at that very year. So... A match that delivered for the WWE Championship and really was one that showcased both both of their talents and uh, one that I would seriously suggest going back to look at. Then you get to Kane versus a returning Undertaker. And an Undertaker that had not been seen on television since Survivor Series in November as the American Badass, Kane buries him alive following, or to end the match between Taker and Vince McMahon at in the Buried Alive contest. And you get Undertaker return with Paul Bearer, sending chills through everyone uh, in attendance. I believe Matt was there, lucky guy. And we see a returning dead man that we would come to know just until his retirement in 2020. And um, not the greatest match in the world, kind of uh, slow, clunky at times, only went for seven minutes, but The Undertaker returning and the whole spectacle and the entrance was what much more what this was about. The story of Kane and Undertaker 
as Undertaker said in his last ride documentary, arguably the best story that WWE has ever told. And anytime you go back to the well with Undertaker and Kane, it is sure to deliver, if not just for the storytelling. And it's not always about the in-ring stuff with these particular guys in this particular storyline, because the story is just so damn good and it is timeless and... You know, this was the second time that these guys would collide at a WrestleMania, ultimately the final time at a WrestleMania, and they would revisit their rivalry in the later 2000s. And then we get to the main event, and Chris Benoit, the Royal Rumble winner, against HBK, against Triple H, in a match that would go for 24 minutes and 7 seconds. And it's not often that the main event of a pay-per-view, particularly a WrestleMania, is by far the best match on the card from an in-ring standpoint, but that's what this was. In my opinion, aside from Austin Rock at WrestleMania 17, I think that this was the best WrestleMania main event of all time. For me, obviously, extremely subjective. Most people will say it's you know, HBK versus The Undertaker at WrestleMania 25, as most people regard that as the best wrestling match of all time. A lot of people will say it's Hogan versus Andre for how impactful that was and how significant that moment was in wrestling history. A lot of people will say the Iron Man match between HBK and Bret Hart at WrestleMania 12. All completely valid answers and probably more correct answers than mine. But this match for a triple threat match with three guys who just knew what the hell they were doing and the storytelling they were building off of and playing off of Triple H and Shawn Michaels' history, both bad and good, where you have that moment where they're both on the announce table and they look at each other and they hit Benoit with a double suplex through the opposite announce table beside them. HBK pouring blood Triple H would follow suit and it was just an absolutely spectacular match and the way it would end and the antics that followed the match are something that for me is absolutely timeless and one of the best endings to a Wrestlemania we've ever seen.
You can't beat Jim Ross commentary alongside Jerry the King Lawler. And, you know, you can't fake the emotion that was exerted by Chris Benoit and subsequently Eddie Guerrero following the championship victory. And obviously, based on the real life events with Chris Benoit and what happened with his family, this is a moment that's not really talked about a whole lot. Which I understand. I completely get because, you know, what happened in real life completely supersedes the Chris Benoit we knew in WWE land. But this was a moment that, as a viewer, it felt the most genuine. Because you had just been accustomed to Guerrero and Benoit as the mid-card guys. And, you know, coming in as the Radicals in 2000 and being involved in Intercontinental Championship matches and tag team matches at WrestleMania, you know, just one year prior, these two were involved in a match for the WWE Tag Team Championships. You know, a triple threat match on the SmackDown side of things. 
Guerrero with his nephew Chavo and Benoit tagging with Rhino. And just one year later, they walk out as the WWE and World Heavyweight Champion, respectively, out of WrestleMania. And it was a changing of the guard in wrestling at this time. It was the first time in quite a while that you didn't have Triple H or The Rock or Stone Cold Steve Austin walk out as a world champion. Uh, the first time since 2000 and not 2000, I'm, I'm too late with that. The first time since 1997 or yet yeah, 1997 that you didn't have The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin or Triple H walk out as one of the champions. You know, you had Triple H walk out in 18 and 19 as the undisputed and world heavyweight champion, respectively. Stone Cold Steve Austin walk out of WrestleMania 14, 15, and 17 as the WWF champion. And Triple H also walk out as the WWF champion in 2000. So The Rock never even walked out of a WrestleMania as the WWF champion. So that was a change of the guard as well. So, you know, it was a big leap of faith faith for Vince McMahon and creative, but one that ultimately played off and something that I will continue to beat the drum that WrestleMania 20 is one of the best of all time and personally and obviously on a subjective list in my top three hands down. Anyway guys, I hope you enjoyed my review of WrestleMania 20 on this week's edition of WWE Retro. As always, you can get me on Twitter at adamarker25. You can, e- you can email Matt at therealwwepodcast at gmail.com, as well as getting him on Twitter at wrestling underscore audio and catching every single other episode and show we have right here on the WWE Podcast. Anyway, guys, stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the WWE Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a show or head to wwepodcast.com and for all of these shows ad free head over to patreon.com slash wwe podcast until then we'll see you next time